Russian Ark, the experimental historical drama film directed by Alexander Sakurov, came out in 2002. And I can't remember if it finally reached me all the way in Santa Cruz, California, that year or the next year. I was still an undergraduate student, and my university screened the movie for anybody interested. Flyers went up all around campus, and I remember the event attracted a decent-sized crowd. The film is just 96 minutes, but the whole thing was recorded in one take, in a single-sequence shot. In the movie, an unnamed narrator wanders through the Winter Palace of the Russian State Hermitage Museum in St. Petersburg, going from room to room, meeting various real and fictional characters from different periods of history. He's accompanied by a European traveler who apparently represents the Marquis de Custine. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but he's a 19th century French aristocrat who's apparently something like Russia's Alexei de Tocqueville. Anyway, when the movie ended, I remember Peter Kenez stood up and declared angrily that Alexander Sakurov shouldn't have gone into filmmaking if he didn't want to edit. I can't tell you if Professor Kenez, my favorite history professor in college, by the way, and a towering, eagle-headed man. I don't know if he was being serious, but I remember thinking at the time how wonderful it must be to have such firmly held beliefs about cinema. Mr. Sakurov, of course, went on to make other movies. His 2011 film, Faust, for instance, won the Golden Lion, the highest prize for the best film at the Venice Film Festival. Like Professor Kenneth, Sakurov is also unafraid to speak his mind when he has an audience. This week... On December 9th, 2021, he had the ear of Vladimir Putin, when the two met virtually in a session of Russia's Presidential Human Rights Council. Like with Russian Ark, albeit this time in just 15 minutes, Sakurov offered another sweeping look at Russia, warning the president that the nation faces a constitutional crisis, and suggesting that Moscow should allow parts of the North Caucasus to leave the Russian Federation. He also read off a litany of other concerns that would be familiar to any card-carrying liberal, from complaints about state censorship and police persecution to advocacy for indigenous rights and the separation of church and state. Vladimir Putin was not amused, and he denounced Sakurov's remarks, accusing the filmmaker of wanting, like they do in NATO, to take Russia backwards to its days as a small principality. Some things it's better to say directly, explained Putin, and some things it's better not to say at all. Welcome to The Naked Pravda. Listening to the Naked Pravda, I'm your host Kevin Rothrock, Majiz's English language managing editor. On this week's show, you'll hear from Valeria Vitoshkina, a lawyer who worked for the now disbanded Team 29 Human Rights Project, and we'll be discussing the state of human rights law in Russia today. But before we get to our guest, let's review some of the most memorable events of the week, which saw an explosion 
of Russia commentary in the Western mass media, thanks, of course, to the looming threat of a wider war in Ukraine, which led to a two-hour conference call between Vladimir Putin and Joe Biden on Tuesday, December 7th, when the two presidents either reverted or delayed Armageddon. Yes, the biggest story in Russia this week was Ukraine. I haven't tried to count the number of op-eds uh, or white papers released in the past few days or past few weeks on this subject, but it's safe to say that somebody out there is opining in print or on camera from each and every interest group involved in this conflict and every school of thought in the fields of diplomacy and international relations. In the past, Nikolai Petrushev, who manages the Kremlin's National Security Council, has famously cited claims linked to a supposed government mind-reading program that Secretary of State Madeleine Albright once declared America's support for the independence of Siberia and Russia's far north. If mind-reading were real, it would come in very handy right now, at a time when pundits, scholars, and diplomats are all clawing and climbing over each other to write the definitive essay about Vladimir Putin's goals and risk aversity. So far... Most of the commentary in English revolves around the commitments Washington can or should make in Kiev, which is naturally desperate for all the assistance it can get. Though the conversation has been happening for years, obviously, the catalyst for the current debate among Russia experts in the United States was probably political scientist Samuel Sharap's December 2nd article in Politico, where he argued that America needs to embrace an unsavory compromise in Ukraine, given that no coercive package is guaranteed to deter Russia. A lot of people disagree, arguing that any talk of compromising with the Kremlin is tantamount to appeasement. The White House only added to these worries when journalists reported after Biden's call with Putin that the U.S. would speak to its allies to discuss Moscow's grievances regarding NATO, which the Russian foreign ministry now formally says must not be expanded further east. What happens next is anybody's guess, but hopefully the worst of any new fighting stays in the op-ed section and on Twitter. Speaking of cyberspace, Russian social media is getting a shakeup. Earlier this month, the parent company that controls Vkontakte, the most popular social network in Russia, said hello to new owners. The internet giant now belongs to Gazprom Media and the insurance corporation Sogaz, putting VK under the influence of the banker Yuri Kovalchuk. Sources told The Bell that the dual ownership arrangement is meant to attract more investors and to avoid potential U.S. sanctions that would apply to any majority shareholder. Whichever company ends up being the real manager, the new owners have already replaced VK's CEO, dropping the son of one influential official for the son of an even more influential official. Yes, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Say goodbye to Boris Dobrydeev, whose father manages the all-Russia state television and radio broadcasting company, and say hello to Vladimir Kirienka, whose dad oversees the Kremlin's domestic policy agenda. The consensus seems to be that this change is more than just superficial, and Contacta is now basically a state corporation. Andrei Pertsev, who reports for Medusa but actually wrote about this for another outlet, 
argued in a recent essay that VK's lifespan mirrors the Kremlin's conquest of other mass media outlets, wherein supervisor businessmen with close Kremlin ties, but some level of independence, and who earned their wealth in the 1990s. In VK's case, this was billionaire Alicia Usmanov. These businessmen decide to transfer their media assets to a state corporation or to another entrepreneur with even stronger Kremlin ties. This is what happened with Alexander Mamut's news websites, which are now owned by Sperbank, and with the news organization Erbekar, RBC, which is now owned by Grigory Biryozkin. When these assets are passed along and moved closer to the Kremlin, the level of non-freedom escalates, or the level of freedom de-escalates, I guess. And various taboos, we're talking about red lines and, and uh, solid double lines, a lot of traffic metaphors, they emerge. This phenomenon has repeated several times with news outlets, particularly because there are disgruntled staff who stick around long enough to leak information about the new management's embrace of non-freedom. Now, if Kontakta already works pretty closely with Russian law enforcement, so I'm not sure the sale to Gazprom and Sogaz will lead any big scoops, but it does make sense, I think, to view this in the context of how the state controls the flow of news information. Something that's different with VK, however, is that Kirienka Jr. and Sr. are both working in roughly the same field, domestic policy and information flows, which means the son is essentially subordinate to the father. I've got two sons, and this sounds like a great arrangement. But this isn't how the system usually works, says Piritsev. So maybe we're getting more little dynasties as Putin settles into his third decade in power. Our main story this week is human rights law in Russia. But before we get to our guest, let's look at a few recent events in Russia's world of law and order. In one of the more unusual developments, Russia's Supreme Court sent the murder conviction of Nikita Tikhonkov and Yevgenia Kasis for appellate review, following a ruling earlier this year by the European Court of Human Rights, which found that their trial from a decade ago was unfair. Tikhonkov and Kasis were convicted of killing lawyer Stanislav Markelov and Nova Gazeta journalist Anastasia Baburova in 2009. The Supreme Court's decision to allow a lower court to revisit the verdict put Nova Gazeta editor-in-chief and Nobel Peace Prize winner Dmitry Muratov in the unusual position of defending Russia's legal system. He's vowed to help uphold the murder convictions. Alexander Bastrykin, the head of Russia's Federal Investigative Committee, is a weird guy. Four years ago, Medusa learned that he secretly writes poems about love and about Alexei Navalny, these are unrelated poems, mind you, under a Polish pseudonym, and he apparently closely edits his own Wikipedia page. And years later, I'll remember your digits and text you one more time, but even an iPhone with the latest widgets can't capture my heart's true chime. That's just a taste of Bastrykin's mighty pen, but even more unforgivable is his lack of a sense of humor. On December 5th, he initiated a probe into music by two popular rappers, Oxymoron and Noise MC, whose songs allegedly contain attempts to rehabilitate Nazism, extremism, and a negative attitude toward law enforcement officials. 
Bastrikan ordered this probe in response to a public appeal that, it turns out, was actually a satirical blog post by a left-wing activist posing as a group of patriots. Though the whole thing was meant as a joke, the police investigation it set in motion is very real. A year ago, actually, a journalist in Nizhny Novgorod was fined 4,000 bucks, the equivalent of 4,000 bucks, in a similar case over a satirical post about church attendance during the pandemic. Now, Bastrikin struggles to recognize humor, but he is a master at being unintentionally funny. On December 7th, for example, he chewed out his generals for allowing too many acquittals in Russia over the past year, expressing concerns about jury trials and instructing state investigators to go work closer with local prosecutors to challenge some of these rulings, these possibly unjudicial rulings, he said. Bastrikin is alarmed about all these not guilty verdicts, even though they make up less than 1% of all rulings in felony cases in Russia. If that's not funny, I don't know what is. The now-disbanded Team 29 Human Rights Project was an informal association of lawyers and journalists led by attorney and open government activist Ivan Pavlov. Until its recent dissolution, Team 29 specialized in protecting the right to access government information in Russia and defended suspects accused of high treason, espionage, and disclosing state secrets. Team 29's members dissolved their association earlier this year after Russia's federal censors started blocking its website for collaborating with a Czech organization that's been banned in Russia. In November 2021, the Justice Ministry designated Team 29's former members as foreign agents, and many of those people subsequently fled the country. Valeria Vitoshkina is one of those people. When I worked with uh, Team uh, 29, uh, we practiced uh, a law in the information sphere uh, about in the freedom of information and access to information and so when i get my attorney at law license in russia i worked in criminal cases about state treason and so on for example i uh, was a representative of organization of alexei navalny when uh, they were targeted as extremists organization in russia and but when I study in the university, for example, I I studied all law spheres because education of law in Russia is very wild, and we don't have any specialization in the university. When you're in school, are you studying with people, some of whom will go on to work as prosecutors, and some of whom will go on to defend? Activists. When I was studying in my second stage, I when I got my master's uh, degree, some of my classmates, for example, investigate. Some of them, uh, as I remember, to, as I remember, helpers of judge. And I'm a human rights lawyer, and it was very interesting uh, for me. For example, because we are so different. We have so different opinions on all topics which we have discussed in our class. And sometimes we, for example, shouted on each other because I can't understand some opinions, some views 
and and they didn't understand me. And now I think they follow me, for example, in Instagram, and they watch it and think what she's doing now. Why, for example, she's a foreign agent now. And it was very interesting experience to study with that people. After, like, say, a class, are you on terms with these people where, like, you can all go out for a drink together? Or even in school, was it, like, separate social circles? I don't have any uh, relationships with uh, my classmates, uh, with no one. Because really, we are very different. And as I can see, some of them became attorneys at law too. But they have uh, a very uh, different way from from my opinion. And uh, it's very difficult for me to, to communicate with them. It is, I'm not, I'm not speaking about that they are bad people. No, they are good uh, professionals. Uh, they are really good people, some of them. <laughs> But I can't talk with them because because of my fear of my interests, it's human rights. I very often talk about it. I often talk and speak about human rights problem in Russia, about our court system problems and so on. And people don't want to talk about it. Can you tell me why are jury trials so rare in Russia? Because due to a Russian uh, criminal law court, not in all cases, the accused can ask for a jury trial. We have a list of uh, cases when the accused can ask for it, and it is very short. It's murder, drugs cases, and uh, I think the, that's all. Also, a lot of cases in Russia are very often the accused plead bargain in their cases. And if accused plead bargain, uh, he can't ask for the jury trial because there is no evidence uh, inspection. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I saw that earlier today that the, the, the Bar Association, they essentially disbarred Ivan Pavlov, is that right? Is that how, like, I, I don't know. I know that, like, the legal systems are different, so maybe disbarring is not the right translation. They need to go uh, to go through two stages. The first is uh, qualification commission, which was today. The second is the other part of the same organization. They've been hesitant. They haven't done this, even though they've been asked to do it by, by justice ministry officials for months or if, if not long, more than a year now. Why Why do you think they've kind of finally decided to go ahead and do what they've been asked? And like, what's the significance of it? Is this the, the end of, of his legal ability to practice law in Russia? Or like, what are we looking at exactly? I'm afraid that a Russian government really took, um, they really tried to disqualificate him from all cases that he handles, from Ivan Safronov's case, from MBK case, so on. And I don't know such a brave lawyers in Russia. And unfortunately, Russian legal system uh, isn't ready for such braveness, for such honesty, and so on. And the Russian system, the Russian court system doesn't like when somebody talk about problems in public, in uh, mass media, for example. I think that it is real uh, reasons why 
he, they try they're trying to dis disqualificate him but if uh, if he will be dis disqualified the legal career for that for him won't end because he can work as a lawyer without a license he can't go to the courts and to investigators for example but he can work with us in the team and be something like a consultant because he has uh, a lot of experience. Is it possible to continue practicing human rights law or assisting with human rights defense if you're if you're abroad? I know that that Ivan Pavlov he he went to Georgia. Of course, it's very difficult because a life of human rights lawyer in Russia is prisons, is investigators, it's courts, and so on. And uh, now, for example, me, I don't have this main part of my professional uh, life, but I still can make some procedural documents. I can I can talk with uh, uh, other lawyers, and we, for example, we discuss our strategy in all cases. We also, I'm, for example, communicate with mass media. And uh, I have, I think that I'm very happy and lucky that I have the, the job because I was, I was afraid that um, if, I, if I leave Russia, I will have no legal job, but I have it. But it's difficult, but we're trying to do something. If, if you're in Russia today and if you're accused of something that would normally trigger human rights defense, whether it's, I guess it's like any kind of politicized charge, I suppose, uh, whether it has to do with political activity or whether it's like a treason case against a journalist like Ivan Safronov, obviously, or, you know, something that would typically, where, where Team 29 would have stepped in. And I know that, you know, the people involved in Team 29 are still doing work where they can, whether it's remotely or whether it's cooperating with people still in Russia and so on. What are the organizations still in Russia that, that are still doing human rights work openly. Like I know that there's like, you know, like OVD Info, they are co they still cooperate with Memorial, assuming that they're not forced to dissolve. And like there, there's, that's, that's one group I'm aware of. Are there other organizations that can still be relied upon to defend people who need human rights lawyers? Or is it all just down to individuals now? Or is there any structure still standing? I think that of course, of human rights here in Russia, and uh, nowadays is in very bad in very bad situation because there was there were elections in September and the Russian government decided to kill all civil society in Russia and uh, this summer and this autumn a lot of um, independent uh, mass media a lot of human rights organizations closed due to due to some reasons, but uh, as I see, there are a lot of people in Russia who work now in human rights sphere. There are a lot of lawyers, there are a lot of volunteers and so on, who still try to to protect people. Yeah, a lot of organizations are closed now, but there are a lot of individuals who can help, they want help and they help other people. You've been listening to The Naked Pravda, an English-language podcast from Medusa. On today's show, you heard from Valeria Vitoshkina, a lawyer who worked for the now-disbanded Team 29 Human Rights Project. We also discussed filmmaker Alexander Sakurov's tense exchange with Vladimir Putin, the pundit's war over the conflict in Ukraine, 
the state's power grab at Vkontakte, and the Russian justice system's lousy sense of humor. The Naked Pravda is a podcast from Medusa. It's our only English language show. And I hope you recommend us to your friends and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're tuning in to help put this program in front of more people. Also, if you value Medusa's reporting, whether in English or in Russian, please consider making a donation at support.medusa.io to help sustain our work. Recurring pledges help more, but any pledges at all will help. Thank you for listening and come back soon. Mm-hmm.